You're listening to This Harvard Life, a podcast about Harvard, its people, and their stories. On this episode, we find out where the wild things are on campus. The fastest animal in the world nests, or tries to nest, on top of Memorial Hall every spring. I'm Kelly McGee. Yeah, this is a different kind of beach, though. What kind of leaves do you have? Are these compound leaves? It's a cloudy Saturday in mid-October, and I'm standing outside University Hall, looking up at a tree through a pair of binoculars. A couple of tourists walk by and see me, and they stop and look up in the same general direction that I'm looking. They stand there, squint a bit, eventually decide that I'm some sort of over-eager architecture enthusiast, and they move on. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure that I'm looking at anything at all. I'm with seven or eight members of the Harvard College Naturalist Club, and we're on a hunt for owls. In the yard, in broad daylight. Apparently a picture of a roosting owl showed up on the English Department Instagram a couple of days ago. Then there was another sighting by someone on their way to class at Phillips Brooks House and another in Leverett Courtyard. What's going on here? Since when is Boston a hotspot for wildlife? And we've seen on our trips seals, coyotes, raccoons, uh, deer, plenty of other salamanders, frogs, turtles, everything. This is Eamon, the president of the Naturalist Club. His specialty is bird watching, but we'll get to that in a bit. A couple of weekends every month, the group leads trips to look for wildlife in local parks and neighborhoods. Joining the group on a walk is like being immersed in a nature documentary in your backyard. People call it species rapid fire. That's a ruby crown kinglet, a blue jay, gray squirrel, horse chestnut, catalpa, larch, sweet gum. There are a couple of disputes over tricky identifications, but for the most part, the group's purpose is to encourage students, including those who don't know much about natural history, to look at the world around them, learn a new name or two, and get excited about nature. We try to talk about it. pretty much everything we see on all the trips. We don't assume like that everyone knows that this is a common species around here. And which is also fun because a lot of times if you've if you're a birder or naturalist who's seen a lot of things, you sort of start ignoring the common species. So then if you're showing them to other people then you start to realize, oh I should should still be looking at these things because they're still interesting. Like, you know, seeing a blue jay for the first time is spectacular. And seeing a blue jay for the five thousandth time is less spectacular. <laughs> but the bird is still just as cool. And to be clear Eamon has seen a lot of blue jays, and cardinals and sparrows, pretty much any type of bird the average backyard observer could think of. How many different species have you seen? Have you counted? Yeah. Corey uh, Husick and Harold Eister and I have a friendly competition where we try to see uh, who can see the most species only using public transportation, so only using the T. Um, and I'm in last at the moment. Uh, but I've seen like 160-something, and Corey and Harold each, uh, 170, 180. For Eamon, observation is a habit. Among all the people bent over their phones, scrolling through emails on the way to class, Eamon is on the lookout for what's overhead. This past winter, there was a black-backed woodpecker in uh, Forest Hill Cemetery in downtown Boston near the end of the Orange Line. And I had looked for them in Yellowstone National Park and in the Adirondacks uh, and missed them both times. Uh, That's where they're supposed to be. So this one showed up totally out of range. And then the day I got back, I went to to the cemetery to see it. That was the day of the huge snowstorm 
uh, so the cemetery was closed. So we snuck into the cemetery, <laughs> and we still didn't see the bird. Uh, it's probably bad karma. A month later, someone finally refound it and quickly rushed over, had lab like in a couple hours, but figured I'd be back in time. Went to the spot uh, and then didn't see it again. Um, but then I went the next morning and it was right there. Got a great look and a lot of photos. Maybe even more than the birds themselves, it's the chase of something elusive that seems to drive Eamon. He's tuned in to a constant flow of creatures overhead, little data points that most people are completely unaware of. If nothing else, the Naturalist Club hopes to get students to pause and pay attention to this natural web, to look a bit more closely at what might be flying, growing, nesting among all the bricks and cobblestones. But generally, I think it's great when people are more aware of how much nature is around here. So we definitely try to emphasize that, um, you know, pointing out that the fastest animal in the world nests or tries to nest on top of Memorial Hall every spring um, is pretty cool. So there's, I think we try to sort of combat the perception that, like, on, the only cool nature is, like, really far away and really hard to get to. And certainly there's spectacular nature in very remote places. But there's also really cool stuff in Harvard Yard. On this episode of This Harvard Life, we're taking a walk on the wild side of Harvard to look at the way that furry, crawling, flying creatures intersect, sometimes unexpectedly, with student life. The Naturalist Club is about learning to see the wildlife that lives in your own neighborhood. But some students don't even have to leave their dorm room to encounter these living creatures. And I'm not just talking about the pests that are bound to show up in 100-year-old buildings. Although, there is one student who allows a couple of those to stick around, even if she isn't their biggest fan. These are gross. I don't like these very much. These are, these are Madagascar hissing cockroaches. Meet Marissa. I visited her room in the Dudley Co-op, where she cares for a variety of living things. Marissa's desk is a miniature jungle with tiny lemon and papaya trees overflowing from pots in the windowsill. Among the greenery are containers holding a small menagerie of insects, including the two cockroaches, which, while certainly not the most enticing creatures, are at least more respectable than the typical dorm variety. Marissa offers me the chance to get a little more well acquainted with one. Um, I'm actually super docile. You can hold one if you want. Do you want to hold one? Sure. Oh my gosh, everyone says no. Write <laughs> your hand out. Do they jump? No. They don't move. People freak out because they think they're going to crawl up their sleeves or something, but they'll really just sit there. Whoa. They're cool, aren't they? He has like a mask on him. Yeah, it looks, you would think those are the eyes, um, but they're actually just protrusions of the cuticle that the males have for kind of pushing each other around. Huh. Um, but they're, they're very chill, as one might say. They just kind of sit around and, you know. I feed them cat food. <laughs> they eat a little bit of cat food. And... If Marissa seems to tolerate the cockroaches, she's a lot more enthusiastic about one of her other pets. So much so that she's given her a name. My pride and joy is Sheila. She's a praying mantis. Um, I got her, I was in Montana over the summer working on the National Bison Range and had been wanting to mantis for a long time and was like out in the field one day and found her and put her in an algae her home um I found another one a couple days later actually um 
but I ended up taking them on like a 14-hour Greyhound to Seattle, and then a flight to Chicago, and then a flight to Boston. One of the cool things about praying mantises, mantids, is that they will turn their head when you walk in the room, um, just because of the way their vision is set up. Um, so yeah, it looks like they recognize you and like you, even though maybe that's a fantasy. <laughs> Sheila, with her big eyes and long, skinny arms, is definitely more charismatic than the Rooches. And apparently, she's quite the entertainer. Um, and her full name is Sheila, goddess of the hunt. Because she's, she's a very good hunter. She's very stealthy. Hearing this, it's good to see that Sheila lives in her own cage, away from Marissa's last two pets. They're bright green, about three inches long, and their heads are covered with angry red spikes. And what is this right here? This you- is a hickory horned devil caterpillar. Um, they're actually extinct in New Hampshire now, I think, maybe also in Massachusetts. Um, but they turn into regal moths. Mm-hmm. And this one, I think, is in its last instar, like its last stage of molting. So after this, it will like, make a little cocoon, and I'll put it in the fridge until May. And then take it out in May, and hopefully it will pupate and become a beautiful little moth. Um, Marissa gives a lot of attention and care to creatures that many people would squish under their heel if given the chance. In the end, though, she does have the power to decide their fate. The moths live for like four or five days, I think. So, honestly, we'll see. I mean, if if we get that far and it actually does pupate and become a moth, I might, it'll live for a few days and then I might pin it for my insect collection. <laughs> um, but I don't know, we'll see. Maybe I'll just let it fly away and enjoy its four days of moth life. Yes, Marissa also keeps a collection of insect specimens. Even Sheila might end up there one day. Although she doesn't love killing the insects, Marissa says it's a way to preserve their intricate beauty for future observation. On campus, it can be easy to get caught up in the onslaught of assignments and meetings and responsibilities until it seems like nothing else matters or even exists. Sometimes it takes the smallest things to remind you that there's actually a lot more going on in the world— the pizzas and essays will pass, but so will those small moments when something beautiful or unique is happening right before your eyes. I don't know. I think there's something to like looking very closely at living things, especially small living things, and like drawing them and observing them, and and like getting to know their habits, so you can look at them and know like, okay, um, the caterpillar isn't doing that well today, and like needs some fresh food, or I don't know. I think yeah. I think it cultivates, like, close observation and empathy. Marissa's appreciation and curiosity is infectious. Still, most students aren't likely to welcome small, six-legged creatures to live right next to their bed. But there are some more warm and fuzzy pets living in Harvard's halls. One of them lives with Michael. Uh, Her name is Baloo. And she is a hamster. Uh, we got her uh, this summer, uh, this past summer, uh, summer 2015, greatest summer uh, ever because we got a hamster. Um, she's called Baloo because um, she she's a fancy bear hamster, which is a term that means uh, PetSmart wanted to charge $10 more for this hamster. Does that mean she eats and dances a lot? No, she and she doesn't sing. No, it's very disappointing. I called, I called PetSmart about that, and they were like, we, we don't offer refunds for that. You are a crazy person. 
Yeah, the other thing is we found on Amazon, when we were initially shopping for the Cajun stuff, all the bedding and the food, uh, is we found on Amazon there are hamster leashes. Wow. Yeah. You can walk your hamster uh, if you've got, like... It was really, it was like $19. We're still, we're on the fence still, I think, about whether or not, we're worried about getting stepped on because, mm. you know, no one looks on the ground for a hamster. It's no surprise that Blue is a great conversation starter. She's a great opener to making friends. I'm like, hey, have you seen my hamster yet? And they're like, is that a euphemism for something? And I'm like, no. And they're like, okay, excellent. I'd love to come see your hamster. But she also has needs that won't be taken care of on their own. In a place where it's never more than a two-minute walk to all-you-can-eat food, owning a pet is a small step towards being an adult when we'll have to start figuring things out for ourselves. She provides, like, just amount, just enough responsibility where it's, like, remember to, like, give her water and give her food. Uh, and, like, you know, don't throw her at the walls where it's, like, I, I'm so good at this. I'm great. I could be a dad. Um, but like, it's, not, it's not so much that it's in any way, like, stressful, which is nice. I'm training, I'm trying to work my way up to, like, a cat or something that can, like, that I'll just, like, put food out and, like, see, like, every third day. They're like, hey, cat, what's up? And the cat will be like, all right, I'm going inside. <laughs> Is that a possibility for next year? Yes. We're moving up to cat next year. <laughs> I hope you get to shark by the end of senior year. It's good to hear he's taking things one step at a time. To finish off our tour of Harvard's underground zoo, we talked to Ariana, who has two feathered friends living in her common room. So I have two button quails. Um, their names are Pan and Ophelia. Um, I highly recommend the Craigslist pet section. It's fascinating. You can literally get anything. Ariana prepares what sound like miniature gourmet meals for the quails. I like to make them, like, little quail salads in the deal. Because, <laughs> um, like, they do need, like, vegetables and eggs and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I always, like, grind up, like, like onions and stuff for them. And I like to give them bugs sometimes, mm. which is super fun. Because, like, I'm actually, like, really afraid of bugs. But, like, I had to get over my fear of worms just because, like, you have to, like, pick them out by hand from the bucket. Um, of course, when dealing with a semi-domesticated animal, there's inevitably a bit of mayhem. But, you know, sometimes I'm lazy, and they live in, like, a terrarium, so when I leave the lid slightly ajar, they, like, take their opportunity to escape. <laughs> um, and I've definitely gotten calls from my roommates over the past year, being like, are you know, like, the quails are out, and then I'll, like, come back from, like, whatever I'm doing, and, like, all the furniture will be, like, overturned. My roommate will be, like, running around with, like, a recycling bin, like, trying to catch them, because <laughs> she's, like, a little afraid of them. Okay. That's, like, the other thing about them, like, getting out. When they do, they poop everywhere. Like, I've woken up with, like... Ophelia, like, at the foot of my bed, and just, like, a ring of poop, like, on the sheets, and I'm just like, uh, this is disgusting. <laughs> Maybe this is why people don't have college pets, you know? <laughs> but when stuff like this happens, Ariana doesn't blame the birds. In fact, she gets a bit philosophical. I think they're just very innocent, right? Um, so it's actually kind of fascinating. I'm taking this class here called Animals and Ethics, which is taught by Christine Korsgaard, and we were talking about basically how animals lack the power of self-evaluation and you need the power of self-evaluation in order to have a sense of morality and to know that your actions are good or bad. So therefore, animals can't be praised or blamed for their actions, really. So I just think that's cool. They're just like these guileless creatures that are majestic and just, just living their lives. <laughs> the worms and early wake-up calls and poop are all worth it to Ariana. 
Although she clearly feels responsible for Ophelia and Pan, to some extent, she lives vicariously through them, imagining what it would be like to be blissfully unaware of any obligations. If owning a pet seems to reinforce the idea of humans as caretakers of the natural world, it can also allow us to embrace our inner animal nature, the part of us that questions why exactly we feel the need to follow the rules and uphold social conventions. Because it's just like fascinating to like uh, finish your classes, come home and like examine like this microcosm that these birds have. Like they don't care about anything and it just kind of makes you laugh and have about like all your worries and whatever because like clearly they don't give a shit about like school or like relationships or anything. Like. Caring for an animal often becomes a way of taking care of yourself. The time spent preparing food or simply observing the quirks of another living being offers a change of pace from a hectic schedule, a way to break out of the tunnel vision we often experience. For our last story, we talked to someone who sees caring for animals as a process of learning to care for everyone around you. Julie is a co-director of Pets' Therapy, and if you've ever passed by Lamont on a Friday afternoon, You've likely seen her and a group of students gathered around a bunch of dogs playing in the lawn. They're on their way to Cambridge Rehabilitation and Nursing Center. Many of the residents at the center struggle to communicate verbally or are experiencing memory loss, which can make it hard for visitors to strike up a conversation. The dogs offer a way in. It's, so the goal is to relieve stress for the residents and get to know them better. But for me and for the volunteers who have talked to you about this, it's so nice just to have two hours where the, your only responsibility is just make as many people happy with this very happy creature. Um, really no thought involved. It's just having conversations and genuinely being interested in what people have to say, which is something that I think can easily be suppressed by this need to like, get more things done all the time. I'm a big believer that like animal people and dog people are often very compassionate people just because it does take a certain amount of compassion to be able to love something so different from yourself it's just a great gateway into getting closer with people if you can connect with and somehow understand this four-legged creature who doesn't speak and is distracted by everything that moves having compassion for another human being no matter how different their views or beliefs may be can't be that hard Sometimes just choosing to pay attention and to really listen can reveal something about the people around you that you never expected. Um, so one of the residents uh, has like very shaky hands and doesn't articulate very well. Mm. So it's always pretty difficult to have a conversation with him. Mm. And then eventually I realized um, a few weeks ago that he was asking if he could go play piano. So uh, I was like, okay, like, yeah, sure, I'll try to, I'll bring you over to the piano. So uh, his wheelchair could barely fit, so he's leaning all the way over. And right when his fingers touch the keys, he just starts playing beautiful, beautiful version of Piano Man. And it was incredibly complicated and everything, and he knew every note. It didn't mess up at all, and, and then he starts singing. And it, it, it just gave me chills that someone... Just because they lose function of a certain part of their body doesn't mean they have so much to say and so many talents. Um, so that was, I think, a really powerful moment for me, just seeing that without the ability to ask to go play the piano um, easily or be heard, that he was, 
he had so many things going on in his mind that the barrier of physical age was made it really difficult for him to express. He was, that was the first time I ever saw him smile. He was just smiling the whole rest of the day. The power of animals, wild or tame, is that they help us locate ourselves as beings connected to the world, but not necessarily at the center of it. Life persists and changes whether we acknowledge it or not. But still, so many of us are consistently drawn to observe and to engage in the lives of things different from us. Maybe it comes from a desire to free our animal nature, but it seems like the more we acknowledge the natural world, the easier it is to appreciate a shared humanity. This Harvard Life is produced by Kelly McGee, Ruby Emberling, Wynn Muscatine Graham, and Allie Reed. The stories you heard were told by Eamon Corbett, Marissa Houlihan, Michael Kennedy Yoon, Ariana Calm, and Julie Baldassano. Special thanks to Colby Knight, Justin Sanchez, and Ethan Crego for some of the music heard on this episode, as well as Justin Jolorenzo and Tree Palmetto for the theme music. This Harvard Life is sponsored by the Harvard Bookstore.